Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Jason Reynolds is the author of more than a dozen books for young people. His books include the best-selling Look Both Ways, As Brave As You, Long Way Down, and co-written with Brendan Kiley, All-American Boys. His work has been awarded the Newbery Honor, Michael L. Prince and Coretta Scott King Honors, the LA Times Book Award, the NAACP Image Award, and he's been a National Book Award finalist. Jason Reynolds has just been named the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I wonder if you can start out by reading to us. This is an excerpt from Look Both Ways. Bryson and Ty lived close enough to each other to get together on weekends and play. Sometimes Bryson would come to Ty's house, a small house over on Crossman. Bryson liked this because Miss Cece, the world's best candy lady, lived at the top of Ty's street. And other times Ty would come over to Bryson's house, a bigger house over on Berman. Ty preferred to play at Bryson's. The snacks were better, the TV was bigger, and a tiny dog named Max Payne was running around barking and clawing at it. The game of choice? Call of Duty World War II, which really bothered his parents. Pac-Man, now, that's a game. You just eat and run away from ghosts, which is what I like to call life, his father said, joking. Or Super Mario Bros., his mother added. I mean, other than fighting the big bosses, you're basically just trying not to be eaten by the environment. Mushrooms and plants and turtles, his father yipped. It's nothing like what you're playing. Ty tried to convince his parents Call of Duty was educational, that it was basically like interactive social studies class, that there was no better way to learn about that particular war than to jump right into it. There is no way you can know war, son, Ty's mother scolded, not unless you fought in one, and you haven't. You're talking about Nazis. That's a lot more than some video game. Ty understood that he didn't know the kind of war he was simulating in the game, that his controller wasn't a rifle and his raggedy family reunion t-shirt wasn't a flak jacket. His headset wasn't a helmet and the sounds in his ears were in fact just sounds in his ears. But Ty also knew that there was some kind of war he was in, some kind of battle he did know but couldn't make sense of, that the other sounds in his head were more than just sounds, that they made his heart do weird things, made his stomach tighten. Ty knew the anxiety of a kind of war. He knew the adrenaline and the confusion of it all. I think one of the many things you do beautifully in your work is write about the wars that we're all in, and specifically the wars young people find themselves in, wars that are sometimes more visible and sometimes less so. Hmm. I've heard you say that you started out uh, writing poetry, right? Inspired first by Queen Latifah? Yeah. And I, then... I, yeah, I mean... I, you know, for me, it was all about trying to figure out where my voice was and where my place was. And Queen Latifah, amongst her contemporaries, right? So rap music of that time sort of gave me, uh, you know, they, they gave me a seat at the table. Or at least they made me feel welcome at the table uh, when it came to language and 
and voice and style and story. Um, and I'm forever grateful for sure. Yeah. I've also heard you say that you didn't read a book cover to cover until you were, is it 17? Yeah, 17 and a half, yeah. And what was it about the books that you were introduced to before that that made you turn away? I think a few things. I think one, um, they were old, you know, like there's this interesting thing about school where they, there's so much value put on things that are old, which I find really interesting only because, um, that which is contemporary, I think tends to attach itself to contemporary psyches, right? Like where we are today. I think a lot of us want to see ourselves in books and I hate it. it that's become such a cliche, but I, but I do think there's something about, um, even outside of the literature, right? When you walk into a room, you search for the people that are familiar, right? And then you can see everybody else. And then you can settle into to the other surroundings and the other sort of things that are happening in that space. Um, in school, it's not that way. When I was growing up in school, it was like, we're going to read about the 70s, the 60s, and the 50s, and the 40s, 30s, and 20s, right? We're going to go all the way back. Um, but I'm growing up, I mean, it's the 1990s. And I'm growing up where there are very specific things happening to the 1990s, late 80s, early 90s, right? We're talking about the crack epidemic. We're talking about HIV and AIDS. We're talking about rap music. And none of those things, we're talking about video games, right? And none of those things exist in literature, contemporary literature of that time. You know, we're still, at that point, we were reading Steinbeck, you know? And though I'm okay with that, I when I was young, it just didn't make any sense. It, it didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't bite down on it. Um, and, and and the other thing is, if I'm being completely honest with you, I, I found as a 12 year old, 13 year old, I found a lot of that stuff extraordinarily boring. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 page expositions is tough for anybody, let alone a 13 year old. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. On your website, uh, one of the things you say, and I'm, I'm quoting from the website now. Here's what I want to do: not write boring books. Here's what I know. I know there are a lot, a lot of young people who hate reading. And you go on to say, because even though I'm a writer, I hate reading boring books too. So a boring book isn't just a book that's irrelevant. What else mm-hmm. makes a book boring or not engaging to a I young mean, reader I or think any I, reader? I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's. I, I think that if there's no uh, what I like to call sauce on it, you know, like it's like you know you could cook you could put a you could put chicken in a pan and cook it and uh, and it will be done uh and it very well could also satiate you but it won't be a pleasant experience cuz chicken don't taste like nothing without season <laughs> and and so for me uh I, there needs to be some style there needs to be some voice there needs to be pace right like i i i i i like pace i like things to be moving they don't have to move too fast right but i there's a reason why we love the cinema. You know, there's a reason when you look at the way scripts are written, they know that they start off with a thing, a hook, and then they'll give you a lull, and they know, you know, 10 minutes in there has to be another thing, and then 40 minutes after that there has to be a bigger thing, right? Like there's a there's a reason why we love that, you know. Uh, the same with music. We know that there's a chorus coming, uh, and we know that after that chorus, we will get to begin again. It'll be a lull, and then there'll be another chorus, and then another lull, and then another chorus, and this chorus will be bigger than the other two, and now we can sing along because we've learned the chorus. Right. And that, right, like the, every other art form, right, major art form has pace. Uh, and I think, um, I need that in my literature. I need there to be rhythm in music, uh, in the yeah. text in order to keep me engaged. Yeah. 
you know, one thing that, that we've talked about is how some people miss the sophistication uh, in children's books and books for young people. And uh, there's this sort of idea that, you know, uh, literature for adults, that's, you know, that's the sophisticated mm -hmm. stuff. I think uh, so many of us have been educated a certain way. And, that's, and that's okay. But I think in the midst of that education, we forget some of the key tenets of said education. And one of the things about writing that many of us are taught that we all seem to forget is that with constraint comes creativity. Uh, and so the constraints and the confines of, of limited lexicon uh, actually isn't a limited lexicon. It's just um, figuring out how to manipulate the, my natural lexicon into something that is palatable for young people, which then creates an opportunity for extraordinary uh, poetic moments. Mm -hmm. Right? I get to I get to uh, activate all of the devices mm -hmm. um, because I have to. Yeah. Right? I have to. I have to figure out how to bend language uh, in a way that can wrap itself around them uh, and make it feel like it's them and it's theirs. Um, but that's not that isn't that's not uh, rudimentary. Like that's that's a very difficult thing to do, um, and I, I I do and I'm working through it right. But I do resent um, when I when I hear sort of some of the some of the chatter about you know people ask me when are you going to write a real book? Okay. Uh, even though I've written all these books, right? And people are like, well, are you are you going to like write a real book? You know, and, and I'm like almost like, well, if you if, if by real you mean a, a novel geared toward adults, sure, um, I'm an adult, right? Um, but I but I do want us to be uh, a little more thoughtful because when we're saying that children's books lack sophistication, what we're truly saying is that children uh, lack sophistication. Yes. Um, and that, that's what we're really saying. And, and I don't think people understand that. I don't think people can put their finger on their biases toward our children, uh, which is, is really what, <laughs> what is taking place in the midst of that, that strange assessment of, our, of children's books being less than. Yes. Well, I think, you know, I, I read your work and it makes me think of, you know, I, I love watching the Olympic figure skaters mm -hmm. and you watch them do these, you know, quadruple axles or whatever they're doing. And it looks so easy. Mm -hmm because of all the mastery of all that, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, and it's so complicated. And I think that the best art um, is deeply honest because to be deeply honest, you have to work on all the emotional layers. We think this, but we also think that. Hmm. Um, I think your work is the best kind of art and the best kind of honesty. Um, but, I, but honesty also is often seen as dangerous. Yeah. And honesty some, sometimes gets censored or banned. And I wonder, your books have been oh, yeah. banned, right? I oh, wonder yeah. if you could say something about um, how you've spoken in your books in, in ways, you know, that what, the re what the responses have been and, and where your books have been banned and how that's worked. Oh, man. I mean, I was getting banned. Let's see. When I Was the Greatest was banned, you know, and that, which was the first novel. And it was banned um, in Brooklyn. It was banned in Long Island, you know. What was the reason given for banning the, the book? Cover. The cover. It wasn't even the content of the book. It was the cover. The cover had a gun. It's a gun on the cover, a gun that is knitted. Uh, it's covered in, in sort of knitted yarn. And I actually think it's beautiful, uh, personally. But um, people, I mean, Barnes & Noble was afraid. They didn't want to carry it, and everybody was super shook. Now, here's the thing. I, in, in fairness, I understand uh, a stark image of a gun being complicated, right? On the flip side, what I don't understand is that if I were to put a uniformed soldier on the cover with the same gun, 
nothing is the matter. Or if I were to put a half-naked teenage girl on the cover without the gun, there's no problem. Or I, I could I could go on and on and on. If, if, if it gets banned from the libraries and the schools, but video games are all over the place. YouTube functions uh, as a free for all. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if I put a knitted gun, uh, which was and it was all purposeful. It wasn't sort of some gratuitous, you know, you, you know, just I didn't we didn't do it to to be provocative. We did it because it, it does have a meaning in relationship to the book. So like you know, all of it's nonsense, and then I'm as banned for all American boys, which is a story about two young men dealing with a moment of police brutality, and this is in the height of all of that stuff when this book came out. We were early on that, and and kudos to our publishers for sticking it next to the guillotine, you know, uh, and for publishing it because nobody wanted to touch the topic with a ten foot pole. Um, actually, we rewrote the book in secrecy because we knew that everyone would try to talk us talk us out of it, and when we gave it to our agents. They said, I'm glad you didn't tell us because we would have tried to talk about it. Everybody was very sort of afraid. The book comes out. We tore it for two years. Um, and it was banned all kind of, all over the place. It was banned, uh, I think, it was in Iowa and all through Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina. I mean, it was like a political cartoon about it in South Carolina, the whole thing with the cops shooting the books. And, oh, my God. Yeah, like, I mean, we've, I mean, I've been, we've been approached by the Klan, uh, on the road and I mean wow. yeah just, just for people who for listeners who aren't familiar with All American Boys so this is a book that you co-wrote with Brendan Kiley, 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 Kiley yeah. who is white and you alternated writing chapters between the point of view of the, the two teenagers yeah. uh, one of whom is the victim of police brutality the other is a, a witness, witness. Yeah. yeah and, and, it, and it, it was the first book that sort of is the first book that begs the question what exactly is the role of white Americans who may never experience brutality uh, themselves. If it never touches your doorstep, what is, it was the first book that addressed the idea of privilege, which is the reason we wrote it in the first place, because we couldn't find a book for young people that was addressing or trying to address the, the, the concept of privilege in this country, and people weren't happy about it, you know? How did the two of you come together? How did you form the plan, and, and how did you form the trust to do it? I met him when when I was the greatest came out. We were touring together because both of us had debut novels. He had written a book called "The Gospel of Winter" about uh, the scandal in the Catholic Church. I mean, he he doesn't steer away from the heavy things clearly. And um, we're on tour, and this is 2014. So this is the time when this is every week is another black person dying at the hands of the police, and I'm on the road with a stranger. And uh, eventually it comes up in conversation and I just let loose, you know, just emotionally. I mean, I'm just I was emotionally bound and wound and, and kind of allowed myself to come undone in front of this man, not knowing how he felt about any of this. But he gave me a gift um, in his silence. He just listened. He didn't try to defend anything. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to spit statistics at me. He let me scream and bang on the bar um, and tell them how I felt, not just about the moments that were occurring, but what it feels like to be me every day, what it feels like to have been my mom and, and, and my brothers and, and my, and like, this is what, I, to live in this body daily, um, it's as if uh, there was a purging that, that needed to happen and he just happened to be the person that was there. And afterwards, um, we begin to have these kinds of conversations, but I, immediately 
he had he had earned my trust simply because he was one of the few, if maybe the first white man uh, in the midst of this conversation to just listen, to just listen. And it was a gift. Uh, and from then on, we just became like brothers. Uh, and we really started to go, go through the muck and the mire and, and, and hash out how we really feel about all the things. And it's complicated, you know. And then it turns out that he had been doing social justice work for like 10, 15 years. He had dedicated his life to this kind of work anyway. And this was this was pretty much his thing, his wheelhouse, trying to undo his own racism and his own biases and his own sexism and everything else that, he, that we all have been sort of raised to be in this country. Um, and to be honest about that uh, and compassionate about that and uh, and do the best we could to leave the world a better place. So, so you go out on the road touring with this book. Mm. You're banned in some places. You're approached yeah. by the Klan. You have oh. um, adults screaming oh and yelling God. about it. How did how did the kids respond? Because you went around to, to schools. Yeah. And not only did we go around the schools, but we went around the schools and it was it was very honest. I don't believe in... Uh, you know, it's the same thing that adults are saying about the literature, right, that it, that it lacks sophistication. I don't believe, not only does the literature not lack sophistication, but my interactions with young people are also very much so honest and straightforward. And, and I always tell them, I believe you can handle this conversation. And they always say, we can. Uh, and so I'm going to talk to you like a human being. And so in these moments that we're in these schools, and I've, I've talked to, I think Brendan and I have spoken to something like 75,000 students. 75,000 students and we come in and we, and we just have honest conversation. It isn't anything. There is no sort of couching at all. It's very much like, listen, here's a, here's a story about when I was brutalized by police officers. And here's the same story about a moment that he had in the same predicament where he took cops on a high speed chase and was let off without, with a warning and told to be safe and get his friends home safe. Right. And, 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 and when we start to break that down in front of the students, they, they, they can see it. They already know it. Right. They already know it. They're waiting. And, and usually what young people say to us afterwards is, you know, you have white kids come up to Brendan and say, I am a white boy or a white girl. The white girls are always amazing because they're because girls in general are always a bit more proactive in trying to um, and trying to make the world better. Uh, this is a this is not a new thing. This is <laughs> this has been going on for as long as the world has existed. But you know, they'll come up to Brendan and they'll say, look, I'm obviously a white girl. I'm a white boy. And. I don't want to be harmful to my friends, but I do not know what to say. That's an honest thing. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I don't want to be offensive. And I don't want to be seen as a racist. And I don't want, you know, like, what, what am I supposed to say? Or what am I supposed to do? I, I don't know what my role is, but I know I have one. Um, can you help me or give me some resources to help me understand exactly what my space is or what my, what my role is in the moment? Well, I've had black kids come up to me and say, look, I, I go to a school where no one seems to hear me. I've been telling them this is a real thing. My brother was murdered by a cop in our front yard on Christmas Day. I've got stories forever of kids I've met along the way, stories of little girls who say, I, I wish I could change the color of my skin. I, 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 they're all living in me. I, and, and in those moments, you realize, one, I'm grateful that we were honest because it allowed them, right? Moment of vulnerability allows for another. Uh, and and they pour themselves out, and they're 12, 13, 14, all the way up through college. You know, kids in, in, in university, teachers, uh, pre-service teachers who are like, look, my father is is, a, is is racist, and I'm trying to have these conversations with him. I don't know what else to do. He just won't hear me. I'm going to give him this book. Or a woman who said, my husband is a police chief, 
and he refused to read this book, but we decided to read it together as a part of our bedtime ritual, and we loved it, and we had some really important conversations that we then had with our kids about what's really happening. Or uh, community officers in Rochester, New York, who sat with me, a black man who's a police officer, been, been an officer for 20 years, who sat with me uh, and and allowed me to say how I felt, and I burst into tears because he apologized. He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because the way that you feel is true. It isn't a myth. It isn't, it isn't sort of, you know, a conspiracy. What you're telling me is the truth as a black police officer who is just a black man when his uniform is not on. I know that what you're saying is true and I'm sorry. And I, and I'd gone my whole life waiting for that moment. Right. Like, I, you know, we've had, I mean, the prison, been in prisons to hear the kids talk about it in prison, how they feel about this. She's been in Texas and have Mexicans talk about, um, you know, what does it feel like for them who who at this particular juncture um, are at risk of being sent home? What does it mean? Like, how does this translate to Mexicans? I had a, a, a Muslim boy in Massachusetts who stood up in the front of all of his class and said, I am the only Muslim boy here. They throw pork chops at my father's door. Right. I am the only one here. And a year later sends me a letter because he was the class valedictorian and gave a speech and, 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 and educated his community on what it meant to practice Islam. Right. All of that coming out of all American boys. So I'll take the little bit of hate and, and I'll take the police officers blocking the door or being the cops being called on me for showing up to the University of Missouri, a place where I was invited to give a lecture because they thought I would incite a riot. I'll take the Klan. I'll take all of the nonsense, the libraries, the angry parents. I'll take it all if it means that our young people somehow find an inkling, an inkling um, of, of liberation, uh, even if that if it's just the liberation of being themselves. You really you're writing like you're writing you're like you're writing for your life, and mm. I thought, well, you're writing for everybody's life, and you're also trying to hand other people the tools to read and write for their lives. You're going to be the national ambassador for young people's literature. Yes, I mean, I feel like you've already been working as an ambassador <laughs> without that without that title. Um, do you want to say anything about the plans you have for that? Sure, role? sure. I mean, my. It's it's a big deal, you know. For those who don't know, it's it's you know, the best way to, to describe it is to uh, align it with something like the poet laureate. You know, like my I have a, a national position. My job for the next two years is to be the ambassador for um, for this work for young people's literature. My my platform is a little different than my the previous ambassadors. Uh, usually, what we do is we figure out ways to you know perpetuate and proliferate literature, right? Like. Or any literacy for that matter. And, and what I, what I know for certain after spending so much time in schools and jails is that telling kids to read doesn't work. It's just not a thing. A kid who doesn't want to read does not begin reading because you told them to. Uh, there are lots of things in between that that have to happen so that that young person can come to that on his, on, on his or her own. And so my, my platform is to put the power of, of narrative in the hands of the child. Once I realized that my story was valuable, it was so much easier for me to read and write. Right? Once I realized that I possessed something, uh, and so my, and so what you're going to see is me on if, if I come to your town, right? What you'll see is me uh, being interviewed by by the town knucklehead, you know, uh, and 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 I put the ambassador medal on that kid. Let them know. Like it's not, I'm the ambassador for literature, but you're the ambassador for you and your community, your family, right? It's you 
right? You are the voice of yourself and your generation and your people and your family and your culture, right? These are, and so you wear this medal. You ask me whatever you want to ask me. All things are on the table, right? Which I know everyone gets very afraid of. Like, no, have them ask you about the books. For what? Imagine what it would have been like to be able to ask Judy Bloom what kind of car she drove. <laughs> and if she answered you, right? You'd be more susceptible and you'd be more inclined to read her work because you know she's a real person. Y'all had a human moment. Very simple things, right? I'm talking about building intimacy. Uh, and, then, and on the back end of that intimacy will be the reading, right? And so we're going to have these really fun human interactions where they get to hold the microphone and ask me all the things they want to know in front of a, in front of an audience. And then I want to, I'm working with StoryCorps, um, out of New York. And we're going to do some recording, much like this, uh, where we're going to allow, and I'm doing mostly middle America, small town America and, and middle America, mainly for my, my platform because there are children there too. Uh, and they're going to get a chance to say who they are and where they're from and have conversation around their communities. So imagine uh, a kid in the middle of Nebraska um, saying, and I asked the kid, well, what, what do you think people say about your town? And let that child let the world know that he or she knows what you say, that they hear the adults. They hear you call it flyover. They hear, they know what you think about, uh, oh, they think it's just corn, or they think it's just cows, or, you know. And then I'll ask, well, what do you think of it? And they say, I think it's great. You know, we house more Syrian refugees here than any year. We're in America, and no one even knows. And it's good, and it's healthy, and we're all happy. And there's no problems. They have schools and jobs, and everything is, right? But no one knows that. Right? No one knows that. And so what you'll get is you'll get the, uh, perhaps we'll get a, a sample set of the oral history of small town and middle America from the mouths of babes. Um, and I think that's valuable. I think that's very, very, very um, important in today's time. Yeah. And we're living in a time of this extraordinary division. We're all reading the same news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're out there talking to young people, and uh, a lot of the same people who um, go on and on about how children are our future are not paying attention to what's happening in children's literature. No. Is there anything that you think is different in the way kids talk about extremism and hate, anything that adults should be more aware of and should be listening to in the way kids are approaching it? I think, I think the one thing I've learned is that kids, well, first and foremost, kids are aware of it in a different way. Um, I think uh, because of the political agendas of adults, we have figured out ways to pretend that it isn't what it is. We have figured out all sorts of semantic tricks um, in order to avoid having real conversations about real things. Young people, thankfully, m many of them, um, they don't do that, right? It is what it is. You know, I, I think about all the things I've learned over the last five years. I think about the conversation around gender. Most of it I learned from like 13, 14, and 15-year-olds. Right, the pronouns I've learned from kids, kids who said, "I, I, my pronoun is they, them, they," and me saying, "I'm not sure I understand," and them saying, "You call me what I ask you to call me." It's a very simple thing, right? Like we're having a conversation around respect. I'm asking you to call me this, and therefore you should call me this. Like that. Why exactly are we having a conversation? Why is it even a debate, right? Like, and I, uh, it, because it makes you uncomfortable has nothing to do with what I choose to identify as. And therefore, I'm asking you, right, because, because if you misgender me, imagine the discomfort that I feel. These are very real things that were taught to me by children. 
children, right? Uh, I've been in protests with 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, school lockdowns where they've locked the administration out of the school in Brooklyn. And Brendan and I have stood arm in arm with them as they organized and with, created a list of demands and let the teachers in one by one after they would, uh, uh, after they could confirm that they would stay and listen to their list of demands. And then the, the principal, where they surrounded the principal and let him know how they felt around how the black and brown kids are being treated in that school. Right. And so, and so I think when it all boils down to it, I think that, um, the, the purity of heart in children uh, is a great gift to the world. Um, I think that as adults, we work so hard to snuff it out. Um, and I don't know, I don't think we're doing it intentionally all the time. I just don't think that we're paying attention. I don't think that we realize the magic, uh, and the true gift we have on our hands with the youth. I think we spend most of our time criticizing them, uh, and, and, and belittling them and, and demeaning them and saying that they're too sensitive as if, as if sensitivity is a negative thing, as if empathy, uh, is, is a curse. If, if our greatest, if our greatest issue with the new generation, the youngest generation, is that they're too empathetic. It's not their problem, right? We're, we're the ones who have a problem if we think that they're being too empathetic, that they want fairness and equity uh, and, and comfort for all people, and we laugh at it. It's such a strange and perverse thing to me. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they, are, that they aren't without flaw, but it does mean that most of the things that we see as flaw is just youth. And we won't give a little bit of that, right? Give a little leeway. Who were you at 14? But their, 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 but their idea that they could change the world, right? That sort of pie in the sky mentality is what it takes to do so. So let's go ahead and inflate that. Let's, let's, let's put all of our energy into that. And just maybe things will look a little different. You talk with students, with young people all the time about mm. what they can do to change the world they live in. So maybe we'll close with the question that, uh, if, if maybe you'd be willing to turn that uh, advice giving to other adults and to other artists, what what can we do in the world we live in? Oh, I think you know, uh, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm I, this is when I wish I were 15, 14. I, I for for me, it all becomes very simple at this point. Um, and it starts with ourselves, you know. And, and it's such a it feels like such a cheap answer, but it's the truth. I think there's no way that you can change the world if you refuse to even speak to the children in your neighborhood. Like, like it's simple. These are very simple things that all of us could do. You know, do you, do you even speak to your neighbors? <laughs> are you are are we willing to have discourse? And are we willing to have uncomfortable discourse? All of us. I don't think there's any one side. I think, I think we all have to be willing to have some seriously uncomfortable discourse. And, and the reason I, I, I say this is because I, I've been all through the middle of this country, and I have my feelings and my biases and my prejudices, all of which actually are pretty warranted uh, based on the history of America. But I've also come face to face with human beings, and 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 this was shortly after said election. Uh, and I remember talking in a very small town. Uh, only Illinois. One stoplight, one school, one church. There's a Walmart super center that everybody tries to get a job at. Closest grocery store is 45 miles. Closest hospital is, is 60 miles, right? These are people, you know, the roads aren't paved. These are people who are resentful of Chicago because the entire state budget goes to that blue city, 
and they have nothing. There's the people who that if the crops don't grow, they starve for a year. And being there, and I was invited there to talk to the kids, and it was a wonderful time. And I went to the pizza shop, and everybody's looking like, that's Jason Reynolds. What are you doing here, right? Like these wild moments, right? Everybody's got on fatigue and camo, and, you know, it's a trip. Uh, but the one thing that the guy said to me was he said, you know, we're starving. And, and I hate to say this, but I, but I will because it's important. We're starving. He came here. He said he'd feed us. We know he's probably lying. But he said he'd feed us. And no one else did. And we're starving. So I'm willing to go against my moral threshold in a moment of desperation at the thought of perhaps feeding my family. Now, do I think that that is the story of everyone in, in these spaces? No. No, I think that racism is alive and well. I think that fear and, and homophobia, Islamophobia, and, and everything else and everything else is alive and is alive and well. But I do think that is a part of the story that we never talk about. And as somebody who grew up in a community where I watched people break their moral codes to feed their families every day, people rob old ladies and 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 do all kinds of other things to and desperation to feed your children. Uh, there's something about that that is um, inherently human. Uh, and so I think that we all have to be slower to judge, which is difficult, I know, especially when you're on the marginalized side. But just know that marginalization is broad. It's broad. It looks a lot of ways, including education, uh, including access to information. All of that is a part of marginalization. Uh, and I think we could all just do a little better with being slower to judge and lean into some really uncomfortable conversations and challenge ourselves. If you think you know the answer to a thing, uh, complicate the argument. Complicate the argument. And if you find that you, it's still the same, it's true again, then complicate it more. Jason Reynolds, thank you so much. I it's appreciate it. It's a pleasure you. to speak to you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.